Red Rum is an independent podcast written and hosted by me, Grace, and audio engineered by Russ. We have no outside funding and rely on donations from our listeners and sponsorships to keep us going. Please consider signing up to our Patreon for two or six dollars a month and receive access to early, ad free releases as well as exclusive full length bonus episodes every single month. Just a note as well, this London bombings two-parter does include an interview recorded on location in London and we took some photos and videos of the actual bomb site locations as well as our guest writer's journey that day, so they'll be up on our Patreon this month too. If you can't support us on Patreon, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to your friends or on any social media sites. It helps hugely. Thank you. And now, on with the show. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of Red Rum has been written by our guest writer, who, as you know, came to me with this episode in mind because he was there. We wanted to include his version of events as they happened to him on that day, so you can get a real sense of what London was like on that awful day. This is the second part of a two-part series on the London 7-7 bombings. If you haven't already, I'd recommend going back and listening to the first part, episode 31. Last time, we heard about four ordinary people on their way to work on the 7th of July 2005, who we discovered led extraordinary lives. Ajara Ikaagu, a social worker with the London borough of Hounslow, born and raised in Nigeria. Her education, interrupted by the Biafran War, gave her particular focus on the importance of education for the rest of her life. In 1969, she married Dr. Okorafor Ikaagu, and they went on to have three children. The young family moved to England in 1976, settling in Luton, and Ajara, keen to further her education, studied social work, returned to Nigeria for a spell, and opened her own hair salon, which she ran for nine years. By 2000, she had achieved her master's degree in social work and joined Hounslow Social Services in the community, working with adults with learning difficulties. She ensured people with learning disabilities got the social care and health services they needed. In 2003, the focus Ajara had on education led her to start a project in her hometown in Nigeria. Between 2003 and 2005, the focus Ajara had on education led her to start a project in her hometown in Nigeria to deliver free education for 500 pupils at the village school she attended, as well as giving the children free books, pens, pencils, rulers and school uniforms. Ajara developed this further by providing twice-monthly protein meals for the school pupils. 34-year-old Lee Baisden, nicknamed Bazza since childhood, had worked as an accountant for the London Fire Service in Westminster for 18 months, 
and was described as a valued colleague and friend. Quote, everyone got on really well with him. Although Lee lived with his partner, Paul, he was still very much focused on providing care for his mother. Lee's father had died in 1992 when Lee was just 18 years old, so he took on his father's responsibilities at an early age and spent much of his life looking after his mother, who has multiple sclerosis. Over the years, Lee's love and commitment to his family never faltered. Nothing was too much trouble for his mum and he always was there for her. He was a quiet man and never liked to be the centre of attention. Lee was planning a trip to Greece with Paul, his partner, and after three years of living together, they were planning to marry. Laura Susan Webb was the 29-year-old daughter of parents Hazel and George. She had two older brothers, Robert and David, who doted on her, and she enjoyed her childhood. As a person, she had a sunny nature that, quote, endeared her to all who knew her. Her mother said she was an outgoing, giggly child who turned into a wonderful young woman who loved her family, and she grew up to have great relationships with her extended family, which was comprised of her parents, brothers, sisters-in-law Bridget and Bethan, nephews Oscar and Lucas, her aunts, uncles and cousins. She was, quote, always happy and laughing, kind and caring, and could always see the best in people, never having a bad word to say of anyone. Laura loved all aspects of her life. Following her graduation that she and her parents took such pride in, she and three friends went backpacking in Southeast Asia, visiting Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, India and Nepal. When she got back to the UK following her travelling, she met Chris Driver, who became her boyfriend while she was working as a runner with a television production company. They then decided to go travelling for a year from December 2000, visiting Argentina, Thailand and Australia, working in Sydney for five months. It was during the holiday that Laura heard about the 9-11 attacks on the United States. She wrote, I heard the horrific news yesterday of the terrorists in America, those poor people. I hope that things in London will stay safe. She suddenly felt very homesick and came home. Laura and Chris set up home together in London and started to plan marriage and children and were saving hard for the deposit on their first house, even though prices were so high. She also loved her job and the people she worked with. 26-year-old Anthony Fatai Williams was a senior oil executive, London-born to Nigerian parents, a Catholic mother, herself a senior oil executive and a Muslim father, one of Nigeria's leading medical practitioners. Anthony's childhood was spent between Britain, France and Nigeria, attending school in Sevenoaks, Kent, Paris and Lagos and he was fluent in French as well as English. He studied a degree in politics and economics at Bradford University, and one of his lecturers there described him as an enthusiastic and capable student, and a pleasure to deal with because of his inquiring mind and personable nature. 
An honourable, loyal and upright man, according to his friends, Anthony had a strong work ethic and high career ambitions, and was studying a part-time master's degree in oil and gas at Dundee University. Two years after joining Amex oil and gas business, he became a regional executive, developing new business in Africa, and when asked why he had joined Amex, Anthony would explain that it was a chance to work within such a forward-looking company, alongside a wide range of skilled, knowledgeable, accommodating and friendly people. His uncle, Tom Akimi, former foreign affairs minister in Nigeria, described Anthony as a world citizen who was proud of his Nigerian and British heritage. Despite his focus on his work and his career ambitions, Anthony had a big heart and doted on his younger sisters Aisha and Loretta, one of whom has Down syndrome. Anthony, described by those who knew him as a good-looking, well-turned-out young man, had earned plaudits from his industry for a presentation given at an oil seminar in London the day before. The story continues. All but Anthony had died in the three tube train bombings that happened at 8.49am on the morning of the 7th of July 2005 and the rescue effort to save survivors is already underway. As events develop in the tunnels under London, there is one bomber left alive who is still at King's Cross and he's having trouble with his bomb. He goes into WH Smith, a stationery shop on King's Cross Station, to buy a 9-volt battery and then rummages around in his rucksack before walking along Euston Road. Meanwhile, Anthony has managed to get on a number 30 bus. There is nothing to suggest that Anthony is aware that the traffic commotion is due to a terrorist bomb attack or blasts on the London transport network. Of course, he could easily have walked. He is a fit young man who plays rugby, attends the gym daily and who has always maintained a healthy lifestyle. His office is within walking distance, but on foot, it would take him a while to get there, particularly with the crowds. A bus should be quicker in normal circumstances, so he jumps aboard and is standing on the lower deck towards the back in the centre aisle. At 9.24am, CCTV shows the bus bomber walking east towards Grey's Inn Road near King's Cross. This is the last sighting of him, although we think he then takes a number 91 bus westbound from Grey's Inn Road to Euston, where crowds of people have been evacuated from the tube because of the chaos and are trying to find alternative methods of transport to get them back to work. The bomber manages to get on the same number 30 bus as Anthony, goes upstairs to the top deck and makes his way to the rear of the bus where he sits down almost directly above where Anthony is standing on the lower deck. At 9.47am, Anthony makes his last phone call to the office to let them know his journey to work has been disrupted. As he does, the number 30 bus is calling along, stuck in traffic because its usual route takes it closer to Russell Square Underground Station, where the bomb that killed Ajara went off an hour earlier. 
By now, Anthony must be wishing that he'd walked, as the journey is so slow. His hope is that the traffic will clear and the bus will make rapid progress. The bus moves forward at a snail's pace, creeping along as the traffic in front of it snakes round obstructions, parked cars and pedestrians. Ten feet here, three feet there. Stop and start until it draws parallel with the British Medical Association's building, M.A. House, in Tavistock Square, a stunning Grade Two listed building. It's peppered with historical features. Two of the most important and impressive are outside, just where the bus is passing. The first are the beautiful wrought iron gates of remembrance, dedicated by the Archbishop of Canterbury, at the opening of BMA House in 1925 to commemorate those lost in the First World War. The second is the central bronze fountain in the courtyard, comprising four statues representing sacrifice, cure, prevention and aspiration in remembrance of the 574 members of the BMA who lost their lives in World War II. A large number of medical professionals either work in or visit the site each day and by 9.47am on the 7th of July 2005, the day's work inside the building was in full swing. It is nearby, on the road outside the British Medical Association, that the number 30 bus service now comes to a halt, held up by the traffic in front of it created by the underground bombings that had already taken place. The bus bomber detonates his bomb. Witnesses see, quote, papers and half a bus flying through the air, and several individuals are completely blown off the bus. The BBC later reports that two injured bus passengers said they saw a man exploding in the bus. The whole of the roof of the bus is ripped away, but the front of the bus remains intact and many of the passengers on the lower deck survive the blast. The rear of the bus, however, receives the full force of the explosion and both the upper deck and lower deck where Anthony is sitting are completely destroyed. A passenger on the front top deck said, The floor went completely up to my seat and I'm mid-air with a strand of floor remaining keeping me from falling from the upstairs seats. I looked behind me, and everybody in all of the seats had vanished. I just went into flight mode. I just stuck my foot out and launched myself off. I hit the side of the bus on the way down to the pavement. I jumped down and I was screaming. It is funny, because I couldn't hear anything. It was like somebody had got you and stuck you at the bottom of a swimming pool. You are so disorientated. All my clothes were hanging off me, where they had all shredded. It blew the top of my shoe off, a heavy stitch leather shoe. Unquote. A survivor on a nearby bus describes the scene. Quote, we just started leaving Tavistock Square, where there was a very strange noise. It wasn't like a bang. It was like a muffled whooshing sound almost. But then the bus was very packed, and I was on the one in front. Being sort of ensconded, I didn't hear. I saw, but I didn't really hear it very loudly. 
there was a mass exodus off of our bus, as things were still coming to the ground and bits were flying everywhere. The only thing I do remember is the carnage and everything as it hit the floor. I remember looking at the bus and I remember initially thinking, what is a sightseeing bus doing there? Because that is actually what it looked like. From the front, that's what it looked like. It didn't look like a London bus. Now I know why, but it didn't look that way to me. It looked like one of those that has the roof off. It wasn't until I actually saw the blood and the smells that I thought something is really wrong here and not right. It sounds almost ridiculous to say it, but it was just such a surreal thing. I still have trouble explaining it. I can still see things in my head, but I just can't find the words to describe it. Unquote. At Tavistock Square, it is immediately apparent what has happened, and the first 999 call is made immediately. Twelve further 999 calls are made, all before 9.56am. As this is a bus bomb on London streets, it's much easier for everyone to know what has happened, and the rescue operation begins immediately. Doctors and other trained first aiders working at the British Medical Association rush out to care for the injured. They start to organise themselves, and the courtyard at the front of the building is gradually turned into a temporary treatment area, where casualties from the number 30 bus can be treated whilst they wait for what is now a severely overstretched ambulance service to arrive. On hand are some of the most highly qualified and experienced medical staff in the world, although they are impaired by lack of medical supplies and equipment. There's a shortage of fluids, despite the fact that eight casualties with serious amputations are being treated, and by midday, there are still some people needing to go to hospital urgently. It is almost certain that the death toll from the bus bombing would have been even higher had it not been for the action of the medical staff at the BMA that day. But Anthony dies instantly. Passers-by are also injured by the explosion, as glass and other debris flies from surrounding buildings, and video footage shows smoke emerging from the bus and people dashing from the scene. Police officers are already on the scene because of the Russell Square bombing nearby, and report the blast to the London Ambulance Service and London Fire Service at 9.49am. Police then identify the cause of the explosion as a bomb. Fire crews with a fire station just down the road near Euston Station arrive at 9.52am, and then an ambulance en route to Russell Square is diverted and arrives at 9.57am. The bombing of the number 30 bus is so severe that it is difficult to identify the bodies of all of the dead, or even the number of people involved, so there is a delay in the police announcing the death toll, and whether the bomber has been killed. It's not until 11.31am that one of the officers at Tavistock Square reports that there are enough ambulances. It turns out that this is the result of ambulances destined for Tavistock Square being directed to the same muster point as those dispatched to Russell Square as they are so close. As people hear the confused reports about the various incidents that have happened, 
they get on their mobiles to contact their loved ones to make sure they are okay. London's telephone networks experience unprecedented volumes of traffic. Vodafone have a 250% increase in calls and a doubling of the volume of text messages. British Telecom double the number of calls of a normal Thursday morning. Vodafone and O2 networks experience 300,000 calls every 15 minutes, compared to 30,000 on a normal working day. O2 normally handles 7 million calls per day. On the 7th of July, however, 11 million calls are connected, 60% more than usual, excluding dropped or unsuccessful calls. Shortly after the bus bombing at 10 o'clock, the mobile phone network in central London collapses. This means that many people trying to call friends and family are now isolated in one of the largest cities in the UK. Radio reporters on the scene are unable to call into the stations and have to use landlines to report the news. It was suggested at the time that the telephone system was shut down by security services to prevent the possibility of mobile phones being used to trigger bombs. And although this option was considered, it was later confirmed that the network simply became unstable because of the volume of calls. The collapse of the mobile phone network causes a serious problem for the emergency services. Managers within the London Ambulance Service, the City of London Police Service, the Metropolitan Police and, at the time, the London Fire Service, relied to varying extents on mobile phones to communicate between the sites of the incidents and their senior staff. Although the emergency services have their own communication systems, mobile phones are an important part of their communication system at this time, and on that day, they didn't work. In 2005, the London Ambulance Service used mobile phones as the primary means of communication between managers at the scene and the control room. And although they have VHF radios in all their cars, these did not work either on the 7th of July. After the event, it was accepted that too much reliance is placed on mobile phone technology as a communications tool. The London Fire Service used mobiles to communicate with their control room. And because they weren't working, incident commanders felt isolated as they were unable to get information about the other incidents at the time. It became clear that mobile phone technology could not be relied on in complex major incident scenarios. A system exists to restrict mobile phone network access to the emergency services within a specified area. This system called the Access Overload Control, is very much a last resort. It is expensive to implement and can cause public distress or panic. The City of London Police did activate Access Overload Control on the O2 network in a one-kilometre area around Oldgate Station, but not until midday, which was around two hours after the network had failed in other parts of London. At the three tube bombing sites, rescue work is gaining pace. By 10.05am, the last injured passenger is evacuated from Aldgate. 30 ambulances and a medical incident officer are at Aldgate, and rescue work also continues at Russell Square. 
By 11am, medical teams declare the train clear of survivors. A number of bus drivers took the individual initiative of offering their services and four busloads of casualties are taken to the London Royal Hospital. At Edgware Road, the scene is not cleared until approximately midday, three hours after the Edgware explosion. The public want to know what's going on. At 10.21am, Scotland Yard confirms there have been multiple explosions in London, although it is not clear at that time how many, whether there are any more, or exactly when the explosions happened. A few minutes later, the British Transport Police confirm there has been an explosion on a bus in Tavistock Square, although it's not until later that it becomes clear that 13 people on the bus had died, or who they are. At about 11am, the British Home Secretary makes his first public comment, saying that there had been, quote, dreadful incidents that have caused terrible injuries. He also confirms London's public transport has been suspended. He says the Prime Minister has been informed at the G8 conference in Glen Eagles and he advises the public in London not to make unnecessary journeys and motorists are told not to enter London. The full scale of what has happened is only now beginning to emerge. There is still confusion though, with Sir Ian Blair, Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service, initially reporting that day that there have been six explosions. London is officially declared a no-go area and all transport services within the central zone are suspended. Transport for London says extra safety checks are being undertaken on all other buses that remain in service and advises drivers not to enter the centre of the capital. London is paralysed. The people of London are now in the grip of fear, not knowing whether there is a bomb near them now, whether there are any more, whether they can venture out, or whether they should just stay where they are. In some areas of London, people can't communicate by phone. They are unable to find out if their loved ones are involved or tell their friends and family they are safe and they have no idea what the next few hours will hold. Everyone in London is on edge. The NHS in London clears 1,200 hospital beds within three hours, ready to receive casualties. The Home Secretary then makes an emergency statement in the House of Commons, explaining that four explosions have been confirmed, three on trains and a fourth on a bus. He says, quote, We do not know who or what organisations are responsible for these terrible criminal acts, unquote. He confirms that the underground will remain closed all day. The UK Prime Minister leaves the G8 Glen Eagles summit in a helicopter, and the US president who is at the summit with him condemns the attacks. At 12.10pm, responsibility is claimed by a terrorist organisation, and by 12.55pm, the authorities have identified accurately that there have been four bombings. Police now confirm that at least 33 people have been killed in the blasts. They say at least seven were killed in the explosion near Oldgate East Station. 
Another 21 died on a tube train in the King's Cross, Russell Square area, and five were killed in a blast at Edgware Road. It is not yet known how many died on the bus in Tavistock Square. However, as the situation becomes clearer, the number of dead and injured increase. For most of the rest of the day, central London's public transport system is largely out of service, with the complete closure of the underground, the closure of the central zone bus network, and the evacuation of incident sites such as Russell Square. Red Rum has gained exclusive access to an eyewitness in central London on the day. Whilst thankfully he was not directly involved in the bombings, he was caught up in the confusion created in London and was just a few metres away from the Tavistock Square bomb when it exploded. So I was travelling into St Pancras. It was, as far as I was concerned, a normal day. I was going to a meeting in Kent, so had to get across London um, because I come in from the Midlands. And when I arrived at St Pancras, what I uh, noticed as soon as I got off the train was that there were announcements that King's Cross St Pancras Underground was closed. And that's that's pretty normal. You know, quite often um, there are problems with travel in London and you have to just think, how am I going to deal with that? So I was thinking, how to, if King's Cross is closed, how do I get to Victoria? Uh, and the way I decided to do it, although it probably wasn't the best way, was to walk down to Russell Square Tube, which was about half a mile away, half a mile south. So I walked down to the end of the platform, had a word with the platform staff who didn't know the reason that uh, King's Cross was closed, then walked down to the front of St Pancras where you can look over Euston Road and what I saw was a whole line of police staff running down the centre of Euston Road, running almost in military lines from Euston to King's Cross. And I thought, hello, there's something wrong here. Uh, Clearly, there's been a security breach. You know, again, something that's pretty common in London. So I thought, well, I don't want to try to cross the road here because uh, there are loads of police running down it. So I'll walk up towards Euston and then walk down towards Tavistock Square, which is a bit of a circular route towards Russell Square, but it was the best route that I could think of at the time. Um, So I I crossed the road uh, by Euston, uh, started to walk down uh, towards Tavistock Square. And just as I was going past uh, the British Medical Association uh, offices, which were on my left, uh, to my right on the road was a, a bus. Uh, which was stuck in all all the traffic because another thing I noticed was that uh, probably because of all of the um, uh, security precautions that were being taken, all the traffic was jammed. Nothing was moving. Anyway, I walked down, I walked past that um, and then I turned left into um, Tavistock Place, walking towards the Brunswick Centre Uh, popped into a shop there to get a a bottle of water and then turned right towards Russell Square. 
It was when I got to Russell Square that things really seemed to be serious because what I could see at the top of the road, past Russell Square Tube, was a policeman. Um, and he was standing, obviously they'd cordoned off, they'd got police tape at the top of the road. And he was standing there stopping people from coming from the main road down towards Russell Square. I was walking up towards that. Anyway, he turned round saw me um, and shouted, run. Now, my thinking is if a policeman tells you to run, you bloody well run. Uh, and uh, so I did. But what, what I noticed was there were some people beside me who just sort of seemed to take it all very calmly as though there was nothing wrong. And they just continued to walk. They walked a bit faster, but they didn't run. But, you know, because I've been around... Um, during previous bomb scares, bomb hoaxes, I didn't hang about. I ran and got to the top of the road and got the other side of the policeman. I guess because I thought I was safe the other side of the policeman. I don't know why I thought I was safe the other side of the policeman, but I did. Um, and then I looked around me and I saw, you know, lots of three, four storey buildings with glass windows, obviously. And the one thing I'd learnt about previous bomb scares, bomb hoaxes, bomb incidents was that the key way that people get injured is by flying glass. So I thought, I've got to get away from this. So what I did was to look around for somewhere that might be safe, that could be away from these windows. And I saw Russell Square Park just across the road. And I crossed the road as quickly as I could and then went into the park. And a lot of other people had the same idea as well. And the park was quite crowded. And I went and stood right in the middle of the park as far away from any windows and buildings as I could. And I was standing right in the middle of the park. How long do you think you were there for? Well, um thing was I didn't really know what to do now uh, I tried phoning my wife to see if she had heard anything and she had well I couldn't get through because when I dialed the number the line was just dead and I thought it was probably my phone um, or, or my network provider so I tried it phoning um the office that I were, or the factory that I was going to for the meeting because I thought, well, I, I can't get to the meeting now. I'm going to be too delayed. So I'll, I'll let them know. I tried phoning them and I couldn't get through. The line was dead. Or every time I tried to phone somebody, I just got nothing. And that's when I got really scared because I thought I did not know what was going on. I couldn't communicate with anybody. Everybody else standing around me was in the same boat they couldn't get through and none of us knew what was happening so there I was standing in the middle of one of the most populated cities in the world surrounded by people and none of us knew whether this was a nuclear attack or a bomb scare or whatever it was or whether this was it we just didn't know um so I stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes and what I kept on hearing was the sound of police, ambulance, fire engines. But everything else, everything else was, was quiet because the traffic really wasn't moving very much at all. Uh, so you just heard the background noise of engines at idling. 
And then out of nowhere, there was an enormous bang. And we all sort of ducked because we didn't know where it was coming from. It sounded quite close by. I guess what was happening in the park at the time, as I say, after I tried to make phone calls and such like, and we'd heard the bang, people were talking to each other, trying to work out what it was that they had heard, what it was that had happened. But of course, we had no information. So really, all we could do was to think, well, what's our next move? What are we going to do to try and protect our own safety? Uh, because there was nobody that we could see to help. There was, you know, I hadn't been in sight of the explosion. I just heard it. Which in some ways was even more unsettling than having seen something happen because you just didn't know what was going to happen. And I suppose other, the other thought is, when's the next one going to be? Where's the next one going to be? How big is the next one going to be? Am I standing close to where the next one's going to be? That sort of thing. So I just thought, I need to move, I need to get out of this and somehow get back to St Pancras. And then gradually the sounds built up again and the noise built up so that there was traffic, there were sirens and everything else. And again, I didn't know what was happening. Nobody there knew what was happening. So we just stood there for a bit longer just thinking, what do we do? We just don't know what's happening. There's this moment of silence and then everything seems to kind of snap back. What, what, what did you do? What did you feel like? Did you want to stay there for longer? Did you feel like you needed to go and find out? Well, by this time, I was pretty unsettled. I knew this was something serious. This was, this was something that I had never experienced before because I'd, although I'd been involved lots of times in security alerts, you know, whilst I'd been in London and evacuating buildings just in case and such like, what hadn't happened to me before was to actually be involved in a real-life incident. And this felt to me like it was a real-life incident. So I, I, the, my first reaction was... I've got to get out of London because something's happening here. So then what was your next, your next steps, your next journey? Well, luckily I knew the area quite well and I knew that if I walked up to the west of Euston, I could work my way round the back towards St Pancras. Now, I didn't know whether there were any trains running out of St Pancras or not or, or what the situation was. But really, I didn't know what else to do. Um, so uh, that's what I did. I took a I took a um, a circular route that took me to the west of back towards St Pancras, but to the west of Euston. Then I crossed over behind Euston, that is to the north of Euston, and then came walked back towards St Pancras from the north of St Pancras. And uh, it took me about an hour. I didn't hear any more bangs. Uh, I saw plenty of police and I was right to take that circular route because by that time there were sort of, um, well, not roadblocks, but people were being diverted away from uh, the Euston Kings Cross type area. So I came into St Pancras from the north, uh, walked down to St Pancras 
tried to get into the station from the back entrance, but I couldn't because it was, they had station staff on and there were police there as well who were stopping any, anybody from entering the station. And obviously, you know, some of the areas quite well, but with your phone not working and also it being 2005, so there weren't the sort of maps and GPS services that we have today. That must have been quite scary to not know where you were going and to have to rely on other people, essentially. Well, that's very true, actually. I mean, this is a a point. um, The question about mobile phones is an interesting one, because whilst I was standing in Russell Square Park, um, of course, all I could do was to try to make phone calls. In those days, phones weren't smart. They did two things. You could either phone people and talk to them, or certainly the phone I had, you phone people and talk to them, or you could text people. But you couldn't find out information. There was no internet on the phone as such. So I couldn't find, when I was standing in Russell Square and hearing these explosions, I couldn't, or hearing these bangs, I couldn't find out what they were. I couldn't log on to local news websites. Um, I couldn't read what was happening on the internet because phones didn't do that in those days and that's the reason that none of us had any information about what was really happening because our phones weren't working we couldn't talk to anybody um and equally when i was um when i was in canley street nature park trying to find my way to west hampstead thameslink I had no maps or anything to help me. So it was simply a question of looking for the street signs towards West Hampstead, following other people who knew their way around London better than me and were on their way. I think I even asked a couple of people who were walking that way, are you going to West Hampstead? And they said yes. And I said, oh, well, I'll uh, I'll walk along with you. Um, and... Uh, uh, that was the way that I found my found my way there. And you mentioned just a moment ago about obviously not having any internet on your phone, not knowing what these bangs were and not being able to search for that. At what point did you um, realise that it was a terrorist attack? I didn't realise it was a terrorist attack properly until I got home. Um, because... Having tried the phones a couple of times and the line was down, I didn't try again until I got to my home station um, and then phoned my wife uh, to ask for a lift home. And um, she had heard on the radio and then turned on the television that there had been uh, a terrorist attack in London. She didn't really know what route I was taking. So I don't think it particularly concerned her in terms of my personal safety, although obviously she was very concerned for the people who were involved. Um, But uh, it wasn't until then that she realised that I had uh, heard, or or indeed that I realised that I'd heard uh, an explosion. Because up to that point, I just thought it was a bang. At 4pm, bus services restart and most mainline railway stations resume services soon afterwards. 
River vessels are commandeered to provide a free alternative to overcrowded trains and buses, but local lifeboats are required to act as safety boats, including the Sheerness lifeboat from the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. Thousands of people chose to walk home or to the nearest Zone 2 bus or railway station. Initially, the underground network remains closed, although, apart from those stations affected by the bombs, services resume the next morning. During the day, much of the King's Cross railway station remains closed, with the ticket hall and waiting area being used as a makeshift hospital to treat casualties. It takes 10 days for all those who were killed on the 7th of July to be formally identified by the police. The identification process is managed by the Resilience Mortuary at the Honourable Artillery Company in the city of Westminster. Because of the length of time it takes to formally identify the deceased, people do not know for certain that their loved ones are involved. Relatives and friends of Anthony, for example, have not heard from him and start a frantic search. First, his mother tries to contact him from Nigeria as soon as she hears about the London bombings. A friend said, quote, He has not contacted a single one of his friends and relatives since Thursday morning, and his mobile phone is constantly on voicemail. He is usually very conscientious and would have called, if only to check everyone else was okay. His mother keeps on calling me from Lagos, asking where he is. Unquote. Another of his friends agonised about Anthony. Quote, Anthony is just such a fun, cool guy. We want to know if anyone has seen him in the area. We have tried every hospital in London, well into the early hours, making hundreds of phone calls, and want to hear from anyone who has seen him, particularly any survivors from the number 30 bus. Unquote. As time goes on, Newspapers in Nigeria report that the search continues for Anthony, but, quote, hope seems to be thinning out with each passing hour. It is five days after the attacks that his family hears of his fate, and weeks before Anthony's briefcase and gold chain, a gift from his mother, are returned. Hazel Webb, Laura's mother, first hears about the bombings as she herself travels across London on her way to a shopping trip. Quote, The bus driver thought a power surge had caused the tube trains to derail, and it happened at Edgware Road. That's the stop my daughter got off for at work. Unquote. Alarm bells are ringing, and when her daughter doesn't reply to a text asking if she's okay, Hazel jumps off the bus and returns home. She immediately texts her daughter to ask if she's all right. Quote, It was ten minutes to nine and I knew she would have been travelling to be at her desk at nine. Unquote. There was no reply. Quote, I jumped off the bus, went home and rang Laura's work straight away to ask if she had turned up. There was this horrible silence for a few seconds and the woman on the switchboard said, Not yet, but we'll let you know as soon as she comes in. I put the television on for the news. When the bus explosion happened, I knew it wasn't a power surge, but a terrorist bombing. That's when I really got worried. Unquote. In the aftermath of the explosions, 
Laura's brother and friends, as well as boyfriend Chris, search for her at every hospital in London, while Hazel and her husband wait at home, with the TV on 24-7, in case there was any news. Quote, After the first 24 hours, I was pretty certain there was no hope of finding her alive. During the time we were waiting for news of Laura, our grandchildren were our light relief. They'd come in and just want to play in the garden. They were great. I said to the one who was five that Laura is in heaven and she would have gone straight there. You have to think of her as a star in the sky. But when you are five, your reaction to that is, okay, can I go on the swing? When she was identified, it was almost a relief. Unquote. Lee's boss at the London Fire Service said, quote, 7-7 was an extremely chaotic day. We were trying to make sure that the firefighters on the front line had all the equipment and services they needed to do their job. I remember the following day somebody came in early and said Lee wasn't in. No one knew what was going on. We all started asking questions and eventually realised Lee was one of the victims. It's hard to think about as it was all very emotional. Lee was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Unquote. And it was the same for the other relatives waiting for news of their loved ones, only to finally get the worst news of all. The people of London were shaken. Although not on the scale of the 9-11 attacks in the US, the London bombings reminded people in London, in the same way as the 9-11 attacks and the 22nd of July attacks in Norway in 2011, and other terrorist attacks across the world, that ordinary people are vulnerable. Even when they are just going about their everyday lives, going to work, taking their children to school, or exercising in the park. Gradually though, over the next few days, life returned to normal for most Londoners, because it has to. But for the relatives of the victims of 7-7, life could never be the same again. The following day, transport services were, for the most part, up and running again, and the everyday life of London continued, almost without interruptions. Tributes poured in for all of the victims of the 7-7 bombings. Ajara's husband said in a statement that Ajara had brought up their three children virtually single-handedly, as he often worked in hospitals outside Luton and was out of the country for six years. Her efforts were rewarded by the academic progress of their children, now a pharmacist, a lawyer and a paediatrician and two grandchildren she would never see. Her husband described her as an extrovert who got on well with everyone she came across. Hounslow's social services director described Ajara as a social worker of the highest calibre. Quote, She shone out above us all with her commitment, dedication and positive attitude. Unquote. The head of care management at the Berkeley Centre said of Ajara that she had an irrepressible personality. Quote, Ajara had her own inimitable style of work with service users, parents and carers and was highly committed to the learning disability service. 
She was never daunted and never shied away from seeking a resolution for the ultimate benefit of service users and their families. Unquote. After her death, her university department at Kingston set up the Ajara Ikaragu Memorial Prize, awarded annually to the best social work student. Colleagues of Ajara have created a special award recognising dedication and excellence in honour of her commitment to helping people with learning disabilities. Hounslow's Housing and Community Services Department created a special annual award to recognise dedication and excellence in social care. The department's director said, quote, Her commitment, dedication and positive attitude made a difference to so many lives. It is a fitting tribute to Ajara that this award will recognise and reward staff who show the array of qualities Ajara brought to her work. Unquote. Quote, Ajara was a colleague who I had much love, respect and admiration for. It was a privilege to work with her. Unquote. Lee's mother told the inquest into the bombings, quote, His love and support made life so much easier for me and I miss his companionship. Lee was a brave person. He was bright and could have achieved so much in his life. He was loyal, sensitive, trustworthy and caring. We will remember him as a fun-loving man who could be stubborn at times. Unquote. Anthony Fatai Williams's mother said, quote, His death has left a yawning vacuum in our lives and a sustained pain too strong for words and too deep for tears. Unquote. At the inquest, his mother described Anthony as a selfless, dedicated young man with a big heart who cared and loved very much. She said that he lived for humanity and radiated joy and peace from childhood to adulthood. But those qualities also meant he didn't handle sadness very well, as his cousin Tom Akimi had told the congregation at his funeral in Westminster Cathedral. Quote, Tears and sadness don't do anything for Anthony at this point. Only joy and happiness is the way he should be remembered. Unquote. The mourners were led by Anthony's father, Dr. Alan Adebayo Fatai Williams, his mother, Mary, and his two sisters, Loretta, 16, and Aisha, 13. In a written tribute, Aisha said, quote, You will always be my darling brother. Family, friends, and colleagues of Anthony Fatai Williams were united in grief at his funeral. People had travelled the short distance across London to come to the funeral at Westminster Abbey. Others had come from as far away as Nigeria to attend. Dress was optional, some people casual, some people formal suits, and more in the bright colours of traditional Nigerian dress. It was time for all of them to say a final goodbye to the peace-loving 26-year-old who was one of 13 people killed in the Tavistock Square bus blast. Bishop Alan Hopes, who led the service, talked about the terrible tragedy of Anthony's death and said terrorism was making everyone, quote, pay a price too enormous to calculate. Mary Fatai Williams said, quote, 
Sometimes I've found it hard to accept that he's not going to walk through that door, that I'm not going to have those hugs anymore, that he's not going to phone, and I can only speak to Anthony through his photo. My son Anthony is my first son, my only son, the head of my family. He's the love of my life. I am proud of him. I am still very proud of him. What did he do to deserve this? Unquote. Laura's mother draws comfort from the kindness of strangers on that day. Quote, the people who didn't walk away, but went into the trains and helped as much as they could, show there is a lot of good in lots of people. Having said that, I don't blame anybody who did run for home. If you have young children and commitments, and you think there is a possibility of danger, I think a lot of people would go. Unquote. Three months after the bombings, Hazel received a letter from a woman whose daughter was 24 when she died in the same carriage as Laura, and they became close friends. They have spent the past few anniversaries of their daughter's death together. Quote, We have a bond that will never break. Remembering 7-7 is important for me and for history. Twice a month, she goes to Edgware Road to leave flowers. Quote, the heartache of losing Laura will never go away, but the absolute joy of having her in our lives for 29 years will never fade. Laura is involved in everything still. The last thing I say in the evening is goodnight to her, and the first thing I think of in the morning is Laura. Unquote. Apart from the bombers, 52 UK residents of 18 different nationalities were killed. More than 700 were injured. This makes 7-7 the UK's deadliest terrorist incident since the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 near Lockerbie, Scotland, and England's deadliest since World War II. 32 victims were British, and one victim each came from Afghanistan. France, Ghana, Grenada, India, Iran, Israel, Italy, Kenya, Mauritius, New Zealand, Nigeria, Romania, Sri Lanka and Turkey. Three victims were Polish, one a Vietnamese-born Australian and one held dual American-Vietnamese citizenship. Seven of the victims were killed at Oldgate, six at Edgware Road, 26 at King's Cross and 13 at Tavistock Square. The Union flag was flown half-mast on the 8th of July. St Paul's Cathedral held a memorial service on the 1st of November 2005 and on the year anniversary, on the 7th of July 2006, a two-minute silence was observed at midday across the UK. A permanent memorial was unveiled in 2009 by Prince Charles in Hyde Park to mark the fourth anniversary of the bombings. During the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games in London, a minute silence was held to commemorate those killed in the attacks. On the 7th of July 2015, a memorial service was held at St Paul's Cathedral to mark the 10th anniversary of the bombings. Coroner Lady Justice Hallett 
said, quote, One of the most impressive things we've learnt is how fellow passengers went to see what they could do to answer those cries for help and went into a war zone. Passengers swung from handrails into wrecked carriages and cradled the injured as they took their last breath, while trained medics off and on duty put their own horror aside to help save lives. Their courage is all the more remarkable as it goes against what psychologists call bystander apathy, a reaction which leads many of us to walk away from extreme situations. It is interesting to know that out of the ashes of the bombings and the death and destruction they caused, some remarkable initiatives have been taken. The free education Ajara funded for 500 pupils at her village school in Nigeria continues to be funded by her husband. In return for her commitment to her hometown, the village posthumously made her a chief and named the primary school after her. Anthony's parents have launched the Anthony Fatai Williams Foundation for peace and conflict resolution in Anthony's memory. Quote, We, Anthony's parents, have resolved to lend ourselves and our voice to finding peaceful ways to overcome violence and terror. Violence, in whatever form, is not the solution to the issues of differences between peoples and civilizations. Violence only begets more violence, more hatred, and more pain, and indeed more suffering. Enough is enough. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.